don't hear you guys. Is everything okay? Oh, oh, oh I, I heard can. that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, it's close enough, as long as somebody can. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, back from the the wilds of, of Northern Maine, uh, joined by Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. Sarah, I think you did a you did a, a great job with the ad reads. I you hope. thought my intro was okay? The intro, well, you know, the intro is tough. It's it's hard to nail, as I know. Um, but the ads, it made me it made me want to buy like all the all the things. Well, uh, good, that's great. So I, I we'll I get hope. to continue this podcast then if you buy all the things. Yes, exactly. Everyone buy things. Okay, let's podcast. Um, okay, so we we got a, a good white paper, a good white paper, a good uh, policy issue. Um, but we we wanted to talk first about a sort of controversy that's been up in the news, a sort of political, though a, a little less less policy oriented. Uh, but Google made waves first for uh, this guy writing a manifesto, and then for firing him for right. writing a manifesto. So this is a somewhat complicated <laughs> story, I think. I came to this late, and it was one of these things where trying to trace back what had happened was tricky. Uh, but so, so let me try to lay out what we're looking at here and then try to decide which part of this you want to talk about. So Google has an internal message board system. They also have something apparently that is like a meme posting interface that is supposed to be an internal Google Reddit. So Obviously, that's going to go. Do you badly. think they kept Google Wave alive? And they just they have it inside. <laughs> no, there is a, and that's in, where their memes are. There's an internal Google Plus. Google Plus is still alive inside Google. What about Wave though? <laughs> yeah, and so how could having a Reddit inside Google um, ever lead to anything bad? And I say that as somebody who enjoys some Reddit, but uh, does not mix with company culture. I think in general. Okay, so they've got this place where uh, Googlers are supposed to post and create discussions and talk about internal Google issues and whatever. I'm not there. I don't know how the conversations normally go. A guy named James Damore, Damore, uh, I don't actually know how to pronounce it, he wrote a piece called Google's Ideological Echo Chamber. And it's a 10-page-ish manifesto that is trying to make the argument, it's trying to make a lot of arguments, actually, and it is very familiar, I think, if you read a lot of the alt-right or kind of semi-rationalist uh, blogosphere. It, it really follows like a like a structure that I think uh, people are used to. But but it created a lot of waves at Google because what it is doing is it is trying to make an argument that Google's leftist bias and its decision as a corporation to pursue diversity, and in this case, particularly gender diversity, as a, as a major corporate value is going to harm the company and is obscuring the just flat reality, which if, and again, I'm, I'm stating, I think, the memo's view, that if you just look at the evidence, men and women are biologically, genetically different in ways that just make it obvious that men are going to be heavily overrepresented in industries like and computer engineering at the top levels of large firms like Google and the executive class. And women are going to be off doing other things that relate to care work, that relate to, to working with people more, that have a, a better work-life balance. And so the structure of the memo is that it sort of goes through what he sees as Google's biases of sort of left-leaning and politically correct, which is probably true, then goes through, I think, a pretty weak discussion of sort of the science of personality differences, men's higher drive for status. Um, it sort of does it very quickly. It's like only a page or so, page and a half of this memo. Uh, and then sort of 
tries to argue that there are other ways to maybe reduce a gender gap, but really the big danger is that in trying to reduce a gender gap, Google will get worse engineers or it will, he's not really super clear on how it will end up hurting Google, but but that it will be bad for Google if they have a politically motivated hiring agenda as opposed to one based in on a quote-unquote meritocracy. Um, a, a thing it sort of says throughout is that opinions like his are suppressed in Google despite being reasonably widely held. I'm sure that's true. So then this memo gets written. It gets leaked to, I believe it was Motherboard Advice. Yes. Gizmodo yeah. also got it. It had created a big stir in Google. Then it creates a big stir in the wider world. Google's VP of diversity writes a rebuttal to the memo internally. This guy then creates, I think, realizing that he might be in trouble. He files a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board that Google is basically saying that his workplace rights are being violated by Google sort of counterattacking on this memo. He's subsequently fired. So then there are these sort of three conversations happening, probably more than that, but, but three conversations happening. One is about this memo itself and is its arguments in any way true. Another is whether this guy's free speech rights were violated, right? Whether he, whether Google either violated the law or violated just basic ethics and, and the way a major corporation should act in firing him. And then the third is this sort of broader fight about what you can and can't say in sort of different spaces uh, in American life today. He's, he's become a major, this guy has become a major rallying uh, point for, for the alt-right, which feels, you know, even irrespective of what you believe, that we should be able to just have like a good old-fashioned conversation about whether women are biologically less suited to, to computer engineering than men. And so we can take any level of this conversation but, but I thought I would stop, I would pause there and see where people want to go with it. I was struck, most of all, by the naivete of this memo, right? The premise of this memo is that Google and its politically correct leaders inhabit an ideological echo chamber in which they are trying really hard to increase the diversity of their engineering staff. And, like, that's just not true, right? Like, if before this had happened last year, you'd be like, what's the deal with diversity at Google? I'd say Google, like a lot of companies, does a lot of PR around this. But, like, do they hire women engineers? No. Do they have women top executives? No. Do I hear terrible things from women who work there? Yes, all the time. And then, like, this guy has to go ruin the party for himself <laughs> by, like, writing this memo that's like, hey, guys, maybe we should just say we're kind of sexist assholes. And then they're all like... Like, oh, James, no, <laughs> no, like it's marketing, like how, you know, we used to have this slogan, it's like, don't be evil, but like, we still do evil stuff, right? Like, it's such a, it's such a software engineer reaction to just like take at face value company marketing material and be like, aha, we have this overwhelming ideology. Um, so I, to me, that's interesting. And then, of course, he gets fired because you can't, especially if you don't actually care about diversity, but just have a kind of marketing push around it, then, like, this is a, a no-brainer, right? Like, it would be really hard to, like, fundamentally shift the workforce at Google and the internal company culture. But it's, like, really easy to fire some one guy nobody's heard of. And, like, lots of people would like to work at Google. What's interesting to me, though, is the to the extent that there's a policy angle here, right? I think there is a case, I don't think it's a very strong case, but 
there's an argument he could make to the NLRB that this violates, I forget the the exact section of the code, but there are some protections for workers' uh, ability to, to speak on political issues. I think Google would argue, well, he was using an internal company message board. It's not the same as just like saying something outside. But even though it's conservatives who are inclined to champion uh, this particular guy on this particular topic because they agree with him on the merits— it's there's no way a Trump NLRB is going to rule in his favor, whereas an Obama NLRB like might have, and a Bernie Sanders NLRB like really, really, really might have, and it would be interesting for conservatives to like step outside their own sort of little like mental loop around political correctness and think about, do they want to sort of reduce employers' discretion to fire people? Because I think, you know, what they would say, if this guy had said or done literally anything else, what conservatives would say about it is like, look, Google's a private company. They can fire whoever they want for whatever reason they want. James Damore, if he doesn't like Google's ideological echo chamber, he should quit and go work at a different company. If he gets fired for publishing manifestos, he'll go work someplace else congenial. Like, there's a free market. Companies that cripple themselves with political correctness will fail in the marketplace. And like, who cares what's the issue here? Whereas it's Vox.com that a few weeks ago published an article about how employers are like little private tyrannies and, you know, we should have like strong sort of rights in the workplace. The particular presentation here kind of like flips people's biases, but that seems like to the extent that there's a policy question, like that would be the policy question to me is like, is at-will employment like bad and authoritarian? Yeah, I want to go back to the actual argument he makes here about this kind of, I think it's like a biological essentialism argument that there are just these fundamental things that are different that cannot be changed. And it's interesting he decides on computer science as the space he wants to focus in, where you have so much evidence flying in the face of this. Um, One of the kind of surprising things when you look into the history of computer science is women have actually been a relatively dominant group in that space, that you have people like Margaret Hamilton, you know, writing the the code for the Apollo mission, really up through the 1980s or so. And, you know, none of this, unsurprisingly, gets discussed in this memo, is that you really have women, you know, as, as a very dominant force in computer science. And there's a fascinating Planet Money um, episode about this, where, you know, they look at women enrolling in computer science and law and medicine. And the 1980s, all of a sudden, something changes. And I don't think it was something about the biology of women that changed in the 1980s. Some of the research suggests what happened was personal computers happened. And boys were a lot more likely to be given personal computers than women. And they had an edge when they were signing up for computer science class in college because they'd had this personal computer in their bedroom that they'd been tinkering on for years, whereas women all of a sudden were showing up and felt quite behind in entry-level computer science. And that when you trace through the history of computer science in recent years, it suggests a lot of external factors and that it suggests it is completely possible for... It feels silly to be engaging with this on like such a specific level, but it's completely possible for women to be successful computer engineers. So on that level, the argument feels quite weak, that there's something different going on with the work that women do. You know, the other place he talks about is women in executive positions, women in um, 
in leadership at Google. And on that, I mean, there's just so many other things going on that are kind of systemic to the wage gap generally, you know, that Matt mentions. This is a challenge Google has. It is not like they've wiped men out of their executives. I believe they are currently under investigation by the Department of Labor for a gender for a gender discrimination um, fight. And so it, it suggests that like Google has not been all of a sudden wiping out men. And I think some of the data they've released, about 30% of Google employees are female, 20% of those in technical positions are female. It is not the case that all of a sudden there's been this influx of um women but when you you know look at women at the very top levels of companies one of the things you're seeing is a lot of those jobs just have very inflexible hours and that makes it very difficult for someone who is taking maternity leave who you know is having children to get to that very top level position usually one of the surprising things i did a long explainer on the gender wage gap last summer and you actually tend to see tech has a smaller gender wage gap because, you know, position actually like engineering positions tend to have more flexible hours. They're more self-directed. You can kind of do the work when when you want to do it. It's not like, um, you know, being a business salesperson where you have to ha- keep these certain hours or owning a store where you have to be open nine to five. You could do a lot of your work on your own schedule. But a lot of that disappears when you get up to the C-suite level where you do end up in a more traditional having to work certain hours, having less of a flexible schedule. Um, A lot of the research from Claudia Golden at Harvard, who's one of the top researchers on the wage gap, really suggests what's driving it is not the skills of the people, it's the structure of the jobs and the ways that jobs have typically been structured around the idea There is someone else at home taking care of things, taking care of kids, taking care of the house. And that as that someone has increasingly gone into the workforce, that has really challenged the the structure of jobs. But that is the limiting factor, not a drive to succeed or, you know, some kind of biological difference. Yeah, I think all I think the points you bring up here are incredibly, incredibly important. And in part because this memo is this memo is a very bad representation of like a much more common form of of argument. I mean, one of the things about the way this whole thing has been treated is I worry. Now, I, I came back like after being out of this conversation for, you know, when it began and then like read this memo. I was like, <laughs> wait, this? This is what <laughs> this is what everybody's talking about? It's a bad blog post, this memo. Like, it, like you would read this and like it reads like a lot of blog posts I've read and it's just nobody would have noticed, right? It's like not even a good um, example to form. And uh, there are a couple of things that I just want to point out here because I think the, the you you point out a big one and and I think it hits this conversation a lot. The structure of this memo, if you sort of zoom out from its argumentation, first we should note because like people will get mad and note this that it does the bullshit move that all of these things do, where it has one of these lines. Many of these differences are small and there's significant overlap between men and women, so you can't say anything about an individual given these population level distributions. So it's like here is this guy saying. Let's make huge generalizations <laughs> about women as a group, generalizations that we will then attach to company policy that treats people as a group. But obviously, like, don't think about this in any individual, um, which is just, it's the most insanely naive. Like, if you want to treat people as individuals, treat them as individuals. Like, don't go and be like, women in general are bad computer programmers. But it doesn't mean, like, literally every woman. I mean, we could give them a test or something. Maybe they can convince us. So I just want to note that's in there and also note that I don't buy it. So the structure of this argument is basically, it, it works like this. Google have decided that diversity is important. 
So that's like premise number one, and premise number one is true. And premise number two is they've decided this because there is huge disparities in, in this case, gender representation in these industries. Let's take Google for now. That's also true. Premise three, then, is that there are biological differences between men and women that might be relevant to computer engineering. And, and here's, I think, the move the memo makes and, and that a lot of these kinds of arguments make. If three is true, then one and two are mistaken. Right, that the memo is trying to make the whole question here, like, is it the case that there is like a thing orientation in female infants, but like a you know, or I'm sorry, a people orientation in female infants, but a thing orientation in male infants? Like as you just said, the culture in which all this happens, the way companies are structured, the way um, careers are structured, the way industries are structured, what we think of people, whether we give them computers when they're young, there are so many of these huge questions that overwhelmingly drive what ends up happening in people's life outcomes that to restrict these arguments, even if it were true, it's beside the point to a very large degree. Like, for instance, he's got this whole thing about work-life balance, right? That being at the top of Google is going to have shitty work-life balance, and women are going to want more work-life balance. And so we just shouldn't have women do it <laughs> for the most part, because being at the top of Google is going to have shitty work-life balance. As you know, there are decisions made in different industries about whether or not you can have more flexible hours, whether you can work at home versus working at the office, or all kinds of these things that are decided and really do affect representation. And that has nothing to do with genetics. It's not biological. It is choices we make and what we end up valuing in society. Human beings live roughly in America 75 years, 80 years. And like in that time, in like one person's life, what we imagine that um, groups that are currently underrepresented can do, like how we talk about them. Like if you go back and look in 1920 or 1930 or 1940 about what, what it was totally normal to say a woman could do, a Jewish person could do, an Irish person could do, an African-American person can do. Human biology has not changed very much over that period of time, but our understanding of what's going on um, has tremendously. And it should make us incredibly humble about offering these kinds of pronouncements. I mean, this guy, I think if you talk to him, he would say that he thinks he's a scientifically-minded guy. He's got a whole like little defense of science in here where he's like, on the right, people think the Earth was made 6,000 years ago, and that's wrong. But on the left, people think women can be programmers at the same <laughs> rates as men, and also that's wrong. <laughs> We have not run an experiment here. American society from 1900 to 2017, or whatever um, you know, a period you want to choose, is not some lab experiment in what people can do and how different groups—gender, race, sexuality, etc.—perform. We've not run an experiment on computer engineering. We've not structured the industry a bunch of different ways to see which way would be the best. Uh, it's just like, it is so insane to look at this and say, well, I looked at this one study about boys reaching for trucks, and like that explains it. When we've built all this, when it's all constructed by us, I, I just think it's so baffling, um, this, kind of, this kind of essentialism. And it so flies in the face of not like our ancient history, but just the last 60 years in American life, when, as you say, like 
computer programming was a heavily female um, job. And then we changed how computer programming worked. And like, we had all these big cultural changes. And it goes to mount something you're saying where I think these kinds of arguments end up overturning a lot of traditional left right boundaries. I think in general, something the right is often better at than the left is thinking about the importance of culture, is thinking about the importance of culture as a distinct thing from politics, from law, from legality, that there are things that you're not just going to be able to change with a regulation or a statute because culture is this powerful force. And then you get into these debates and it's like culture just gets like totally thrown overboard. It's like, nope, it's all gender, it's all essentialism, it's all biologic, like nothing we can do about it. Um, it just is what it is. And it's just weird. A massage is great. You know, it helps you feel better. It relieves stress. But, you know, a lot of us don't really go and actually get them very often. And a big part of that is is the convenience factor. And so now Zeal is going to solve that problem by letting you get a massage in the comfort of your own home with no travel, no inconvenience, no difficulty booking. So that's what Zeal is all about. You book a five-star, top-quality massage at a time that works for you in the most convenient place of all, your very own home. Uh, So so how does it work? You just go to zeal.com or use the iPhone or Android app. That's Zeal, spelled Z-E-E-L.com. It's like from top local licensed and pre-screened massage therapists. Choose your favorite technique, your gender preference, time, a location that works for you. To help you out getting started, our listeners can get $25 off their first massage by using promo code THEWEEDS at checkout. And it gets better. Sign up for Zeal's massage membership. You get 20% off all your massages, plus a free massage table and a sheet set. It's a $380 value, and it's for free. So you go to Zeal, that's spelled Z-E-E-L, E-E-L.com, or use the iPhone or Android app, and then make sure to click on the ad promo code at checkout. That's where you can use the code The Weeds. You get $25 off your first in home on demand massage. I remember ancient history, but the exact same controversy when Larry Summers was president of Harvard University and he gave a speech with essentially this exact content on this exact subject. It wasn't uh, Google engineers, but it was tenured faculty in science and engineering positions. He said, in the interest of being provocative, not to deny that there are some issues in society and blah, 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 but here's like a study showing that there's a fatter tail distribution of male performance on math tests. He mentioned a study about kids reaching for trucks. And he was like, so we should consider that one reason that all of our tenured science faculty are men is that men are biologically superior. There was a huge firestorm. He got fired from the position. It became one of these weird things where I think the view of anti-PC people is that this was an example of the suppression of like bad think that Larry Summers got fired as president of Harvard University uh, for Summers' critics, the fact that he went on to have the most powerful economic policymaking job <laughs> in a Democratic Party administration suggests he hasn't like exactly been run out of town on a rail. I, I covered that as like a, a student journalist. And a, a key thing in that controversy is that even though Summers was <laughs> Officially, he wasn't denying that there was any possibility of discrimination or anything that could be changed. When the president of a university that has major demographic disparities in its employments in the elite field starts kind of musing aloud about, like, maybe this is fixed genetic capacities, it sounds to any reasonable person like what he's saying is, is like, actually, we're not going to change anything. We're not going to try anything. And this is where, to me, again, the, the naivete of, of James uh, Damore comes into play here. 
it would be interesting if we had an example of a prominent technology company that adopted a hard quota hiring system and then collapsed, right? And then we were saying, as a hypothesis as to, like, what had happened here, perhaps they, like, went too far in the pursuit of equality. But what it often seems like is really going on with these things is that people are trying to say there is nothing to be redressed through through our, our, our sort of means and, and modes. And, and there's, you know, quite a few good studies that that show, you know, that regardless of who reaches for trucks, um, that, that can't be right. I mean, I wrote over the July 4th weekend about a study that Gompers and uh, Paul Gompers and Sophie Wang did. And they looked at uh, venture capital firms whose senior partners have daughters versus who have men. And they show that when senior partners in a VC firm wind up having daughters, they start hiring more women as junior partners at their firm, and that the firms that have more senior partners who have daughters, and therefore more women hired to be junior partners, have better investment performance than the firms that don't, right? And yet, the the market and its wisdom is not like cashing out for this more diverse hiring, right? If you if you hire more women at your venture capital firm, you will get better investment returns. Uh, but venture capital firms don't hire more women unless sort of quasi-duped into doing it. Um, And there's a good study from uh, the Kellogg Business School, and it shows, it gives a possible reason for this. It shows that more diverse organizations make better decisions, but that they are also less happy, right? That, like, people prefer to be with a group of people who are similar to them, to have their ideas not be challenged, and then they make worse decisions. You will be better off technically as an organization, having a more diverse group, having more contentious meetings, uh, rethinking your premises in a more fundamental way. But people just don't like it. So if they have the opportunity to only hire people who are like themselves, they they choose to do it because they're not like strict sort of business maximizers. And, you know, it just seems to me that if you are taking these issues seriously— then you have to take findings like that seriously. You know, that, like, there are real biases and entrenched structures that give us good reason to think that, like, organizations would do better to make more diverse hiring, and that there's no, this, like, question of what's in the, like, outer limits of maybe I have a science thing doesn't arise in any practical way. And it's, it's, just, it's fundamentally weird to me to be looking at this giant company where the executives are almost all men, where they're under pay discrimination investigation by the Labor Department, where only 20% of the people in engineering departments are women, and to be like, aha, what is the stultifying culture of political correctness here, right? Like, there isn't actually one. and But I do think that it's unfortunate that the, not that I think it's unfortunate that the guy got fired, but I think it's unfortunate that the ping-pong result of him publishing this manifesto, there being a firestorm about the manifesto, him getting fired, there being a firestorm about the firing, is going to be to further entrench this idea that, like, Google is this hotbed of politically correct decision-making, when it's definitely kind of like how they position themselves, particularly when Obama was president, but it's not, it's not what they're doing, right? Like, the reason you don't have any companies, any big companies that have lots of women software engineers, is that none of them are actually really, really 
trying, right? Like even on this guy's theory, it's not that there's like no talented women software engineers. If any company was like genuinely out there really trying to like recruit and hire a diverse technical workforce, like they would do it, but they aren't doing it. I was surprised, you know, you bring up the Larry Summers thing, how much traction this memo got. You know, if Larry Summers, it made sense. He was the president of Harvard. This was like some doofus who works at Google. I was a little bit surprised. Saying that it, something that wasn't new. Saying something that wasn't new. Like, like Ezra was like a doofus at Google writing a shitty blog post that like if I had read on the internet, I would have been like, ugh, and then just moved on. <laughs> like that would have been the amount I would have um, engaged with it. But going forward, I think, you know, one of the things you could see is, like, what woman wants to, like, work in this environment? Like, why would you want to go be an engineer at Google knowing, like, this is what your colleagues think? And I think that's one of, you know, when you think of, like, why are there not female engineers at Google? Like, maybe they didn't reach for a truck when they were six months old, but maybe they don't want to work in an environment where their colleagues think that they are mentally inferior to them, where they haven't been encouraged to think like, yes, you are someone who belongs here. Yes, you are someone who's going to be just as successful. So you you almost see something like this perpetuating this guy's belief, because you'll say, well, look, there's no talented female engineers here. Like, they're not here. They're doing something else. Um, you know, they're probably doing some more person-centered job that they are more biologically fit for. But it also just seems like something that really makes it a very unappealing work environment to to want to be somewhere like that, where you know people are writing these 10-page things about why, why you're never going to be at the top, why you don't really belong. And it seems like an explanation that should, like, fly back at this guy for, you know, why why aren't there as many women in tech? Well, it's because you're writing, like, memos like these ones. I, I want to merge the things you all both said, because I think there's something actually pretty important here. So why did you, you ask a really good question, I think, which is why, why did this memo blow up? Like, who cares? This guy's not even a, he's not even a senior position at Google. And Google's tens of thousands of people. It's a huge <laughs> workforce. So why, why does this blow up? And, and I think the reason is that this memo isn't, it allows both sides to have an argument they want to have. What I think is interesting about the debate on this memo is it's actually not the same debate. What the sort of like the quote-unquote the left is arguing about this memo is look at the diversity problem in tech, as you just said, right? Like look at what people in tech are like. Like of course women don't want to go into the field. Of course people of color don't want to like be an engineer at Google. Like it just looks terrible. Like you got to work next to this guy. Like why put yourself through it? And then on the other side, like people on the right want to say, we're not even allowed to say this, like on an internal company message board, like you can't even talk anymore. Like, like what has happened to America? We can't even speak. And, and this goes to Matt, what you were just saying about what does Google say? What does it believe? One of, I think, the trends, dynamics of the Trump administration, but of this era, and I think one of the, the, the tricky parts of this whole conversation is there is a quite large difference between what many people think and what sort of particularly in more elite company cultures and in politics and the media, what is sort of considered now okay to say. And a lot of people have opinions that they don't feel are okay to say. Donald Trump holds a lot of opinions that in like quote unquote polite society are not okay to say. Like you're not supposed to run for president and walk in and be like, you know, Mexico is just sending us all these rapists, like, all the time. Um, or, 
you know, when you're a star, they let you do whatever they want. You can grab them by the pussy, right? Donald Trump is a guy who holds a lot of opinions about a lot of things that you're just not supposed to say. We sort of know people believe that stuff, but, you know, there's a lot of modes of politeness in society, right? Like, I am not supposed to walk up to people on the street and curse them out. And some things get ruled like, hey, maybe you should keep that to yourself. And so there are versions of that that are just about politeness, and there are versions of that that, that are more dangerous um, or more significant or more consequential, right, depending on what opinion we're talking about. I think something that Matt is getting at here is that I think you actually have cultures like Google where there's a pretty big difference between what they, how they self-present, how they publicly present, what the company leadership presents as, and then what a lot of people in the company think. And something you're hearing internally is that there are a lot of people in the company who are privately like sending this guy words of support, that it's definitely not 100% of Googlers believe what Demore believes, and maybe it's not eight, maybe it's not even 20%, but 15 or 10 or even 7% of a company is a lot. And if they all feel like they're not even like allowed to say, hey, like, stop and, and by the way, this comes on the heels of Donald Trump, um, of there being a report in the New York Times that Trump is going to direct the Civil Rights Department, the Department of Justice, to begin investigating colleges that are um, discriminating against uh, whites and, and, and possibly Asians in, uh, to benefit more historically oppressed minority groups. And so there's this feeling right now, um, and, and you see it now exhibited the highest levels of the government, but it's also within these tech companies that, you know, this effort to, to right historical wrongs is disadvantaging, you know, people like this guy, you know, who maybe he feels he's probably not that great of an engineer. He'd be higher up in Google. And maybe he looks around and he thinks people are getting promoted over him because either they hold the right opinions or that he thinks somebody's going to get promoted over him who's a woman or a person of color who's not as good as him, but it's because they're trying to get this representation here. And so, you know, and he's not even allowed to talk about it, right? And this is... Uh, this has created a lot of pressure in the system, right? I think of Trump as, to some degree, a response to that pressure. Um, I think of the outcry around this memo as a, as a response to that pressure. And it's hard because I think people a little bit have not wanted to have the argument, uh, which probably does need to be discussed in, in more real ways, although I don't even exactly know where I fall in all parts of it. But yes, like there are, like, there are reasons people try to at least start moving the conversation into these directions. Um, when you're dealing with groups who we have historically oppressed, who we have locked out of really, really important professions, who we have given worse educational opportunities to, when we're talking about women in STEM who from very early on uh, get a lot of messages that computers are not for them, that math is not for them, right? You have like math is hard Barbie back in the day, that yeah, like it's actually important to maybe get fucking um, engineers who grew up in a complete, who came up in a pretty sexist culture to stop wandering around saying, maybe there aren't more women engineers here because they're just biologically not as suited for it as I am. And I think that one thing here is like, you are seeing like people do believe this, right? And um, even people who don't want to believe it sometimes believe it. I think you see that at places like Google and you know certainly people who say they believe the opposite thing don't always act like it. And there is a, in that gap between where people say they are and where they are, or where people feel like they can, they're publicly allowed to be in where they really are, there is a lot of ferment in American society right now. Probably always has been, but but is a lot right now. And it's coming out in, in weird ways. It's coming out in, in problematic ways. And it's coming out, I think, 
in ways that are allowing quite bad arguments to attain this sort of martyrdom status because, like, on the one side, the argument is you shouldn't be making that argument. And on the other, like, that argument, should, like, the, the argument's bad, like, it's, it's shut up. And <laughs> on the other side, it becomes not even really a defense of the argument, but a defense of, like, free speech. And, like, everybody's just sort of, like, running past each other in this conversation. Uh, I'm not sure I know a better, I'm not sure I know what the right conversation is to have, but I think the dynamics of this are, we're seeing this repeated out a lot of times right now. And and Trump, is, and like we are living in a country where the president of the United States has surfed this wave of discontent about the gap between what, you know, people feel like they should be able to say and what they feel like they are able to say more adroitly than, than anyone else in, in public life. Postal service is honestly like a, a practically miraculous kind of thing. Uh, you, you've got a letter, you got a package, uh, they'll deliver it anywhere uh, for, for very little money, uh, anywhere in the country. It's really, it's kind of great. But the one aspect of it that isn't that great necessarily is needing to go to the post office in order to get your postage. You know, they maintain limited hours. Uh, there, there's a limited sort of range of convenience. And it's really just such a sort of, it's the least interesting thing of what they do is like giving you a stamp. And that's why stamps.com is such a great solution. So any Anything you could do at the post office, you can now do right from your desk with Stamps.com. You buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer or printer. And unlike the post office, it never closes, right? So it's there 24-7. You need a bunch of postage right now. You got time right now. You can go get it there online super conveniently. And so right now, you can use our code WEEDS to get advantage of a special offer. It's a four-week trial that includes postage and a digital scale so that you'll know how much postage you need. You just go to Stamps.com and then before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in weeds. That's stamps.com, then enter weeds, stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Democrats a, a few weeks ago uh, came out with a better deal sort of policy agenda for the midterms. Um, it, this has sort of like... Uh, bullet points within bullet points to it. Uh, but one particular bullet point that, you know, I thought was is weedsy and interesting uh, relates to prescription drug pricing. And this itself has sort of three elements to it. One is that Medicare Part D should, quote unquote, negotiate with uh, pharmaceutical companies and basically make them accept lower prices in exchange for the, the very large volume of purchases that, that it accounts for. Uh, that's a sort of democratic idea that... Um, predates Medicare Part D itself. This was a big part of the legislative controversy over over the program in the first place. Potentially more interesting in some ways, although also potentially smaller bore, is what they're talking about in terms of uh, drug price increases in general. And they want to say that companies that want to do large price increases should have to submit to Health and Human Services a sort of written, uh, they describe it as a justification, explaining why the price is going up so that I guess the idea is that if the only reason you're jacking up the price is you're like uh, Martin Shkreli and you just like figured you could get away with it, you have to actually write on paper like there's no reason for this. We just thought we could make more money this way. And then you you kind of look bad. Um, and then related to that, they want to create a new sort of single purpose agency that would be able to investigate and I guess veto drastic price increases. And uh, this is something that a sort of drug policy expert, not focused on, you know, illicit drugs and public health type stuff, who I was talking to recently, uh, 
about the opioid crisis, he was actually advocating for this because he made the point that something can happen like we develop drugs that are effective in countering opioid overdoses, right, which is something that happened years ago. There's a modest market for that kind of drug. It's not like that big of a deal. Then 10, 15 years into the drug's lifespan, the quantity of opioid abuse goes way, way, way up. Suddenly, police departments all across the country want to get their hands on anti-overdose medication. And so now the suppliers want to jack up prices to sort of meet that increase. Um, That's just a pure windfall, right? That doesn't create any incentives to do R&D. You're talking about drugs that was developed long in the past. And he was saying, you know, the government should basically not let people do that, right? That if you luck into some kind of windfall like that, you shouldn't be allowed to to jack up the the prices on things. If you develop something new that's extremely valuable, maybe you can bring it to the market with with a high price. So I don't know. uh, These are interesting kind of... On the one hand, there's nothing that overwhelmingly new about it if you sort of are a a longtime veteran. uh, But it's also... I would say the first sort of, the clearest sign I've seen from, like, Democratic establishment of, like, wanting to do a kind of post-Obama reboot. These were ideas that had been kind of, like, in Democratic Party circles for a while, but Obama took office. They made the decision not to do any of this kind of stuff, to actually not really challenge pharmaceutical companies, to use them as partners to help kind of sell the Affordable Care Act. And here you have the party leaders saying, no, you know, now that we're like in the opposition, we want to go back to the drawing board, come out with a message that's, you know, much more statist, more populist, uh, harsher on these kind of corporate interests, and uh, that kind of takes on some good corporate titan-type villains rather than saying, well, we're going to have an enormous payroll tax increase to create a huge new government program. This is the kind of populism that political consultants really like, you know, where you, like, you take on the bad guys rather than saying, like, we're just going to have, like, huge tax increases on everyone. But I don't actually know, like, Sarah, like, you've done more work on, like, the merits of this kind of thing. Like, does this make any kind of sense? Yeah, it's interesting because it borrows some of this regulation you saw around health insurance premiums in the ACA. So Obamacare requires that any health insurance rate increase above 10% be publicly posted. I think it's on healthcare.gov or somewhere, but there's somewhere... You can go up and look up um, in the individual market, not in the employer market, but if you're someone who buys through the Affordable Care Act, you can see all these listings. And insurance companies are required to justify, well, here's why we want a 30% increase this year. But it's always a bit of like a buck passing. It's, you know, we want a 30% increase because the drug companies are increasing their prices 50%, and we have to account for that. One of the things I'm curious about, you know, that relates to these relates to the health insurance premiums is whether just making this information available and bringing light to it actually changes behavior. Because I think there was a theory with this rate review, this idea that every double-digit increase would get um, publicly posted, that insurance companies might try and do a 9% increase because they didn't want to go through, you know, that process of, you know, being called out in the local news as the one who wants the double-digit increase. I don't think there's been good research, not as far as I'm aware, um, whether or not this has actually changed how insurance companies act if they try and do lower premium increases because of 
that threshold. But I, I'm a little skeptical of it, of this idea. So I think it was the second idea you mentioned, Matt, that um, companies have to just have to kind of give this justification. Um, whether that moves the needle. One of the things we've seen over the past few years are some controversies around some really expensive medications. Um, the one that comes to mind to me is Sovaldi, this pill that cures um, hepatitis C um, when taken, I think, for about three or four months and was incredibly expensive. And the reason it was expensive, when I talked to the people who made Sovaldi, they'd say, well, all our competitors are expensive and we just priced competitively and we have a better product. It's not like the materials or the R&D, like, it's not like, oh, well, we had to, like, employ X people or buy this fancy ingredient. It was like, we have very innovative um, medicine, and we plan to charge a shit ton of money for that because we have done something quite different. And the lesson I, I think drug makers took from Savaldi was this got a ton of attention in, like, 2015. I was at conferences where people were protesting outside, but they weathered the storm. Like, they charged the money, and they got a bunch of money and did quite well. And even with that very public focus on very high drug prices, it seems like they did fine. The lesson I would take as a drug maker is just like, keep your head down. I think like, don't be like a total asshole, like Martin Shkreli. Like, don't like flaunt to people on Twitter that you're charging all this money. But if you're a professional drug company, it's not clear to me how much of um how much just transparency making drug companies talk a little bit more about their prices would actually Think, make them think differently about how they price. I think that's right. And, and I think Savaldi is a really good one to look at here. It was $80,000, if I remember. I think 80 to 100, yeah, for yeah. a course of treatment. But, but it cured hepatitis C. Yes. I mean, and, and so I think that is where there's something really interesting to talk about here. So it seems to me there are two kinds of policies in this release. One is a pretty straightforward policy to allow Medicare Part D to negotiate drug prices, which is just, it's insane. It currently cannot. Um, Medicare negotiates other kinds of medical services, and nobody thinks like the medical system is collapsing on top of that. Uh, so being able to negotiate drug prices would make a lot of sense. It's what you do in other countries. And you get into very weird efforts to, to do go-around here. Um, Bernie Sanders, and I think, I don't know if Trump supports this, but Bernie Sanders has uh, keeps putting forward a bill to allow importation of drugs mm -hmm. from Canada, which— Makes sense because those drugs are fine and they're a lot cheaper, but they're the same drugs. Like, instead of <laughs> having the Canadian government negotiate drug prices <laughs> and then going to buy them from Canada and sending them into the U.S., we should just have the American government negotiate drug prices and, and, and buy them in the U.S. So it's a simpler way of doing of, of doing this. And it's just like the fact that anybody that we even have been talking about reimportation for so long, it's just bad. It's just like it shows how screwed up our system is. But then you have this other harder question, which this other set of policies is trying to deal with, which is what happens when a drug company creates a drug that genuinely is much, much, much better, that genuinely produces a huge um, social gain? And so they price it much, much, much higher because they're working with a product that people do almost anything to get because the alternative may well be death or it may be permanent disability or maybe being on a dialysis forever, whatever the cost might be. And, you know, you get into somewhat tough um, arguments here because there is real evidence that spending more on drugs does lead to innovation. You know, there are easy cases like this sort of post hoc windfall, right? You you created a drug long ago, then you jacked up the prices 15 years later because there's an opioid crisis, and clearly that didn't, that's not leading to much innovation. But um, 
you know, the Savaldi thing where, you know, arguably they thought, well, man, if we could create something that cures hep C, we could charge any amount of money on earth for it. So it's worth spending a huge amount of money to try to find that, that drug. It's real. I think that you've got to try to find other answers in here. And, you know, Bernie Sanders, he he's had in the past, I don't know if he's reintroduced it in, in this Congress, but he's had an, an idea I've always thought is a pretty good one. The way we do drug pricing right now is based on patents. The reward for creating a drug is that you patent it, and then you get, I forget the the length of exclusivity, but before other people can make generic versions of that drug, you get 12 years, is it? I 10, think, yeah. something like that. Uh, and so during that period, the market is not working. You have a government-granted monopoly on this product. You're the only one who can sell it. And so you can charge basically any price because nobody can come into the market and undercut you. In the way that, like, Apple comes out with a cool new iPod and somebody else just, like, they can't, like, sell you Apple's iPod, but they can make their own iPod. I mean, they got to do it a little bit different. But, but you know, you do, you're able to have competition in these spaces. And what Sanders has argued, and, and other people have argued this too over the years, is that at the very least as a parallel system— it would be wise because drug innovation is something we want to incentivize. And the way we're doing it is currently very inefficient. It also incentivizes companies to create Me Too drugs that just allow them basically to renew their patent on something but doesn't really work any better or just looks like something somebody else has done. So a lot of the innovation we're getting is just chasing these, these monopolies um, with, no, uh, with no real thought for what people actually need or where the innovation would be most useful. So, you know, he's argued that we should have a fund um, and it'd have to be quite big but that would allow for prize-based drug innovation. So, you know, the government would say, if you are a company that manages to create a pill, and I'm just completely using a hypothetical example here, but that can, you know, a, a pill that could uh, be a, a massive improvement on current AIDS cocktail regimens, right? Or if you can create an AIDS vaccine, let's say, you would get, again, I'm picking a number out of thin air here, but $5 billion. But as soon as that happens, and it doesn't matter, you could be a company, you could be a university, you could be a guy in your garage, you get this $5 billion check, and then the formula is immediately generic, so anybody can make it. And so it can be available at very low cost to the public. And then, you know, the government could say, like, okay, like, what do we actually feel the most strongly about getting innovation in? And, like, you know, opioids might be a, a real place, right? If you can create a treatment that is clearly an improvement on current anti-addictive pharmaceuticals, then you'd get this huge windfall, and anybody would be able to make the treatment. Or if you could get a treatment that, you know— somehow is really able to help the obesity crisis, you could get these huge, this huge amount of money. So that's just one thing here. One thing I would note, Democrats are, are, are thinking about how to bring drug prices down, but they're not thinking in a real way about how to bring innovation up. And that's really, you, we really somehow need to do both. It's often presented as a choice, but the system we have right now is not one oriented towards innovation. It's one oriented towards profit-making with innovation being one side effect, but also a lot of waste being another side effect and a lot of people not being able to buy drugs being a third side effect. And I, I would like to see both like Democrats and Republicans thinking a bit harder on this. Can I tag on one thing Please, to that? Yeah. I think um, one of the things that's helped me is I think there's actually like two different problems. High drug prices get kind of like lumped together. Like there's EpiPen and Savaldi and Martin Shkreli and all of these are really expensive drugs. But I think there are two separate things going on that require two different sets of policy. One is just this profit-seeking on generic drugs. Like the Martin Shkreli, you find this drug no one else wants to make and you jack up the price 5,000% because you can, because there's no price regulation where you are not adding any innovation. I think that's a space where there's a lot of agreement. Like we should not allow that to happen. Like there should be more regulation. And I think there's one set of policies aimed at, and EpiPen is another 
good example of this, of a drug where the ingredients are generic, but you have one dominant manufacturer, and all of a sudden the price keeps going up, and people who you know need this drug to survive are kind of held hostage. The other thing is, you know, actually innovative drugs, drugs that cure hepatitis C, that really changed the game, that um, when, for example, IUDs were rolling on the market about a decade or so ago were a completely new, more effective contraceptive that also cost $500, um, you know, per device, making them out of reach for a lot of women. And I think those are, you know, we often put them together as the same problem, but I think they're pretty different, um, how you handle generic profit-seeking drugs and how you handle these actually innovative drugs. Because, you know, we want to encourage innovation in drugs. We want to encourage more Savaldi's and less Martin Shekrelli's. And I think thinking of them as two separate categories would help develop a better better scheme of um, of actual drug price regulation, that the problem is not the same with, with Savaldi and with Martin Shekrelli. Well, but to, you know, stand up for, for the better deal. Um, I, I actually feel like, in terms of what, what you guys are saying, that the, the better deal proposal, that, like, justification and the special regulator is reasonably well suited to tackle the kind of Shkreli cases without impacting the Savaldi cases. And, I mean, Ezra's right, that's a, a limited scope of the universe. Like, we might also want to do more to encourage, like, groundbreaking cures. But I mean, I think a good point about this is that, like, you know, if you had to submit your literature to HHS and you said, look, the reason Savaldi costs so much is that we think this is game-changing technology that will drastically improve the lives of patients, uh, you might look at that and say, yeah, fair enough, man. But, like, lots of things that happen in the drug market don't meet that test, you know, and it could be way harder to get away with, you could just say, well, look, we're creeping up the price of the EpiPen because we did our market analysis. And we think that other people know that if you make the fixed investment to enter this market, we can cut our prices again to drive you out. So we're not going to face competition, even though the ingredients are generic. You look at that paperwork and you're like, no, man, like we're not going to let you do that. And that's a sort of concrete way to make the lives of a lot of people who suffer from fairly banal kind of medical issues, like we need some EpiPens around the house, just sort of like better, right? I'm a big fan of prizes. I I read a good book called Longitude about the prizes that were created uh, by the British government because they wanted someone to invent a good way to tell where your boat was. Um, It did not occur, I think, to 18th century people to just have the patent system. The government was like, this is an important field in which we want to encourage technical innovation. So they they got a big pot of money together for it. You know, but this EpiPen stuff, these other kind of like workaday chronic type treatments that people are just relying on month after month, year after year, it seems to me it, it matters a lot to people. And there's at least potentially some some gains in this idea. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Oh, but I think the better deal policy, so they're, I think they're well-suited to deal with, like, the EpiPens and Martin Sheck rallies. I don't know if they're well-suited to deal with something like Savaldi, with this right. really expensive cure that is, like, the classic healthcare rationing problem. Like, a lot of people want it, and we can't afford it for everyone. You know, they can try and negotiate down the price, but typically— you know, I think everyone likes the idea of Medicare negotiating drug prices. They like it less when 
you learn that Medicare will have to say no to some things. Like, that is too expensive. We are not going to buy it. We're only some Medicaid programs, for example, we're trying to manage their Savaldi spending. And they um, said, okay, well, we're only going to give Savaldi to people with end-stage liver disease. Like, that is how we are going to handle this because in our Medicaid budget, we cannot pay for this for everyone. And it led to a number of lawsuits from people with earlier-stage liver disease who said, well, well, that's not fair. Like, I, I could be cured, and you're just denying me this drug that's really going to help me. So I think, yeah, the the Democrat policies here, they, they help deal with these generic drugs. I don't know, you know, if they help deal with Savaldi, who will come in and say, well, our justification is we cured hepatitis C. That's like not a bad thing to submit when you're asking for for a pretty significant price. Yeah, and as you say, I mean, some of these drugs that come out, like Savaldi, did because of the way particularly Medicare is structured, Medicaid is less this way and does a lot more internal rationing in its benefit packages, but um, and, and who it gives benefits to, Medicare, I believe the way it works, it basically has to cover anything that has clinical efficacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you could have a drug like this. It would, like, if, if it was for a common uh, ailment, it could destroy the federal body. I mean, it could do tremendous, tremendous damage. Right. Like, I think of Alzheimer's. If there's, like, Yes, a Savaldi for Alzheimer's. Right, which would be great, which, which would be a would huge be advancement and that's that actually, it'd be hard to grapple with. And that's actually why, I, I, I maybe I didn't phrase this very well the first time, but it's actually why I push on the innovation side of this. I think that in politics, we have a very robust conversation over the affordability of existing medical treatments. I don't think we have good <laughs> policies, but I think we have a, a good conversation about it, or at least an, a, 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 an ongoing conversation about it. And I think there's a lot of political pressure on the question of this treatment exists, but I can't afford it, or this treatment exists, but people can't afford it. I think we have a lot more trouble with the value of things that don't yet exist and may or may not ever exist. But the... I mean, if you look at what has been effective in in the medical system in the past however many years, 40 years, a lot of the really big gains come from pharmaceutical innovation. I mean, they really do uh, for all kinds of different reasons. Now, that's actually slowed down a little bit. We're we're going through a pharmaceutical innovation slowdown. It's part of why Medicare Part D has come in under budget uh, because there's just been fewer big blockbuster drugs and were projected when the the program was first brought out. That's a really bad reason for it to be coming in under budget. And, and this is something I think the government can do. And so it isn't that I want to take away from the importance of trying to figure out how to make existing innovations affordable. But in terms of the way the medical system can make people's lives better, it's not just by being able to afford care, but it's by being able to actually make you healthy again. Um, and, and Alzheimer's being a great example of that. Now, there are a lot of things like Alzheimer's where – it is clear that if you did come up with an Alzheimer's drug, an effective Alzheimer's drug, the profits on that would be tremendous. And so I don't really think there is a dearth of market incentive to come up with it. But there are a lot of things where there are. Antibiotics are actually a really good example of, of something where there's a dearth of, of market reasons for a lot of complex reasons to come up with new kinds of antibiotics. Um, there are a lot of uh, kinds of conditions that tend to be that tend to afflict poor people that that. People don't, you know, want to do as much. Um, want to do as much around. Then, then there's just like a lot of energy that just goes into what will be surefire. So you create drug X, and drug X is fantastic for treating allergies. And then after a certain period of time, you lose your patent on that. So you put in a bunch of effort into slightly changing the molecules so you can be 
bring out like drug named something very close to X. So you keep the branding, but you also have a patent now. It's not that that stuff is problematic, but it's just a lot of energy goes into Me Too drugs and goes into surefire drug innovation, whereas, and a lot less goes into things that are, for whatever reason, considered less profitable, even as they're really dangerous. I mean, a great example of this kind of thing is something like Huntington's disease, which is incredibly devastating for the people who are afflicted by it, but it's also not that big of a population. So the possible profits of like really working to, to fix Huntington's disease would not be that big. So this is not to say that we should not have a drug affordability agenda. We clearly, clearly should. An interesting thing about this, by the way, is that Donald Trump used to say he believed in negotiating down drug prices. Then he had a meeting with pharmaceutical executives and never said that again. But it's worth noting that. So in theory, this is even to some degree bipartisan. But I just, I also think we need a drug innovation and in general, generally a medical innovation agenda. And what pisses me off about it is medical innovation, I find, is like, it's only invoked as a defensive mechanism against affordability measures. Uh, and, and that can't be, like, we can't be, like, the status quo is, like, the only thing we can possibly have in this country. Like, I think we actually need to figure out a way to pair these things, to have an affordability agenda, and to also have a genuine innovation agenda. Because, like, what we what you're supposed to be doing here is both creating a healthcare system that can cure or treat as many ailments as possible, and then making those cures or treatments affordable for as many people as possible. And just focusing on the latter in politics, I think, is missing you know, a lot of the long-term benefits that we could be getting out of a focus on the former. Looking good is great. It's important to, to everybody. It's good to have nice, stylish clothes. Shopping, though, can be kind of a, a pain in the ass. Not everybody likes it. Certainly, uh, I don't like it. And the 5-4 Club uh, revolutionizes the way you can get menswear uh, so that you, you're looking great without all the shopping. What they do is they send you a curated box of two or three items. It's, it's handpicked to match the current season and your style. Uh, they've been helping men with fashion for over 15 years. They ship to over 100,000 men every month. So, so they know what they're doing. And, and if you don't, that's okay. That's what they're there for. Uh, 5-4 Club will help you build your wardrobe one month at a time. You get $120 worth of clothes for just $60 a month. You can pause or cancel at any time. And as a 5-4 Club member, you'll receive up to 50% off items in their online shop and access to exclusive members-only items, free shipping, and size exchanges. Uh, so what do you need to do to do it? Uh, you go to 54club.com right now and enter promo code WEEDS. They'll give you 50% off your first month's package, plus a free pair of sunglasses. That's 50% off your first package at 5-4 Club, 5 club.com promo code weeds white paper all right um so in, in the space of drugs we're moving on to opioids this is um a white paper one of our listeners tim copeland out in california sent me so thank you for suggesting this one thanks tim <laughs> so this is a paper from princeton from molly chanel and janet curry two economists there and it is looking at the role of physician education in the opioid epidemic and what they find the kind of big picture finding in this that I think will engender a little bit of controversy, at least, is that physicians who train at higher-ranked medical schools pre prescribe significantly less opioids. It is true across specialties. It does not seem to be reflective of um, the patient populations people train on. It does not seem to reflect like a certain um, program within the medical school what they find in this paper is that there's a gradient across the rank of medical schools. And when you get to the lowest ranked medical schools, they have the highest rates of opioid prescribing. And the thing they really try and show in this paper is that this is something possibly about the school. One of their tests is they look at physicians who had training after medical school, some pain-specific training, and they saw that that had an effect, that if you 
you saw that gradient go away when there was some pain-specific training outside of the medical school environment. Um, so after having done some reporting on the opioid crisis, it makes sense to me that physician habits on opioids are largely learned. Um, you know, one of the people I interviewed recently is the president of the American Medical Association, Andrew Gurman, who is a hand surgeon. And, you know, he told me, you know, when he started practicing as a hand surgeon, he would, I forget the number, but, you know, he would give all his patients 45 opioid pills after surgery because, you know, the person who taught him to be a hand surgeon gave his patients 45 opioid pills after surgery. And that's how you end up in, you know, a situation, you know, my husband was in just in December where, you know, he had surgery and he has like 30 extra pills that he has no need for. He takes maybe two. And then you have all these leftover prescriptions. And a lot of that is really learned behavior. The thing that surprised me in this paper, and I think the thing that'll probably be the subject of more research, is the correlation with the rank of medical school, um, suggesting that schools and, you know, maybe higher ranked schools, you're having better diffusion of knowledge on the opioid crisis, more concern about it. I don't know. So the part about the the part about physician habits being shaped in medical school, that definitely made sense to me. The rank of medical school part was really surprising and interesting to me. I guess I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I'm not super comfortable with this, but I'm not <laughs> sure why it would be so surprising that people went to better medical schools, give somewhat better treatment. I think what this shows, uh, and this is changing particularly in the opioid area, but is um, how weak overall standards in the medical industry are. There has not been good evidence. There's not been good research on opioids really at all. We just had a great piece from Julia Belouz who looked at 80-some studies around back pain and just found that for all the opioids prescribed, there's actually no good study showing that opioids are more effective than other things for back pain. Same is true for most kinds of surgery, by the way. Uh, just like the things we do in back pain, it's like like rumor and witchcraft, and it's bad. It's really bad. If I'm surprised at any point that there is this difference, it's more because there's so little good research. So I'm not sure what would be making the higher rank schools do a better job than that, you know, in some kind of abstract way, the best doctors are better than worse doctors and that where you went to medical school is to some degree correlated, although obviously it would not be 100% to, to doctor quality. I will note just because I thought this was one of my initial questions about the paper and they allayed it for me. One possible thing you'd be seeing there is it doctors from higher-ranked medical schools end up with a less sick patient population or somehow a different patient population. So one, I think, important control they ran in here is they looked at they looked at the relationship between medical school rank and propensity to describe opioids among specialists who attended different medical schools but worked in the same clinic. <laughs> so, I mean, you have a clinic uh, where some people went to, you know, pick your top school and some people went to pick your not top school. And they looked at what happened in those populations. And there was still a, a quite big difference, even though you'd assume the patients coming into that clinic because they're all in the same area would have reasonably similar propensities uh, and, and, and needs for pain treatment. Again, maybe there's stuff we're not seeing there. there the, I, I wouldn't be shocked to find there is some amount of patient issue here, but uh, but I wouldn't. That, that does seem to be, to me, to be a robust control. The last just quick thing I'll say is that a lot of the opioid problem, not all of it, but uh, a, a fair amount of it, does come from like really quite unethical opioid prescription. So, I mean, there's 
over, there's too much opioid prescriptions just in general. And then there are some people who are just running pill mills. I was just reading Dreamland, which is a fantastic book it's on the so opioid good. crisis. It's real good. Uh, and it wouldn't surprise me at all that the people running pill mills did not go to the best <laughs> medical schools. Um, he sort of goes through how the pill mills actually pick up on doctors who, you know, nearly got disbarred or had, you know, like lost their jobs somewhere else. And so I think in some of the places where it got really, really bad, you do see the problem concentrated among certain doctors. And those doctors, I, I do wonder if they're skewing the results at all. Something, you know, lurking beneath the surface of, of this paper, but that it, it reminded me of is that we treat medicine in a slightly oddly decentralized entrepreneurial kind of way at the like doctor training level, even while other things like Medicare and Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act and health insurance regulation and the tax deductibility of employer-sponsored insurance and ERISA rules are like very top down, right? I mean, there's like marketier approaches and more status approaches, but there's a general consensus that like medicine is a scientific field, that there is a truth to it, a right way and a wrong way. The FDA just like says what drugs you can sell and what drugs you can't. But then doctors are being treated like straight out of 1870, like coming with like ability tracking of the medical school students, right? Which, like, is one, one question that's raised is, like, well, why do you do it that way, right? So, like, the guys with the best LSAT scores cluster in the same handful of law schools, and they produce lawyers who go work for the same cluster of, like, big law firms. But that's because it's, a, like, a private business with no, like, public interest objective. But, like, why do we want to train the nation's core of doctors in that way? Like, should the most marginal candidates be in a school full of other marginal candidates being instructed by marginal instructors and then put out in the world to, like, do a not good job of treating people's illnesses? And then we'll say, like, well, it's going to fail in the market test, so <laughs> it'll be poor people who are treated by the poorly trained weak. Like, that doesn't that doesn't sound like something you would articulate as, like, a goal of the medical education system, really. Um, and there's like a lot of different versions of that with like not requiring the doctors to update their, their training and their practices. But it's like, I think it would be an interesting exercise at some point for members of Congress, whoever's involved to like, you know, sit around a table with a whiteboard and like, what are they trying to accomplish with medical training in America? And then ask some people if the system in any way is like, effective at accomplishing those things. Because whenever you look under the hood, it always seems like, yeah, it's kind of obvious that, like, the doctors with the weaker MCAT scores who get taught by the worst instructors are going to do a worse job of treating illness effectively. But, like, that seems really, like, that's really unfortunate. Like, that's that's bad. People need, like, medically effective healthcare treatments, I think we could probably all agree on. Yeah, this reminded me a lot of um, Atul Gawande's piece in The New Yorker. Um, I think it's called The Cost Conundrum, this piece um, that became very famous during the healthcare debate in 2008, where he went to McAllen, Texas, where people get way more treatment for no seeming reason. And I think this is one small example of a much larger thing you see in healthcare is just huge, huge, huge variation from doctor to doctor, from place to place in how doctors practice medicine, where you have all these medical journals, you have all this research, but it's 
kind of a bit of a crapshoot of how it's being represented to you as a patient when you walk into a doctor's office. Um, as I've gotten older and like shopped around for doctors who couldn't really seem to figure out how to treat a problem I was having, it becomes really apparent very quickly how much variation there is between I was seeing orthopedists for my foot and one guy was just like stuck on, well, just take vitamin D. Every time I'd go, it'd be like vitamin D again and again and again. Well, um, did you take vitamin D? I did, and it didn't fix the problem. (laughs) But, you know, each person I would see would have a totally, you know, they were all technically trained as orthopedists, but would have a totally different idea of what exactly it was I should be doing. And, you know, with opioids, though, I'd say the stakes are, like, a little bit higher than, like, the stress factor I had in my foot. You know, vitamin D is not an addictive pill that I was taking. With opioids, the stakes are much higher in how people are interpreting the research and how, you know, what types of treatments that they're getting. I was also going to start up my comment here with an Atul Gawande mention (laughs) (laughs) to a different Atul Gawande point. Oh, what do you have? Uh, So I was just listening to an interview Atul Gawande did with Tyler Cowen on on Tyler's podcast. And I think Tyler asked him, I don't remember the exact question, but, but the answer that Atul gave was that the biggest thing that physicians need to update themselves on and recognize and, and become more honest about is that medicine has now become so complex and fast moving that it can't be an art anymore. It can't just be that you are experienced and smart and like keep up with the medical journals. It's too big for that. And it, we're not at a point where like Watson can just diagnose you on its own, but we are really fast moving to a point where to not be having real sort of AI-assisted diagnostic is insane because it's just like, even if you're trying really hard, probably if you're a general practitioner, so you're seeing a very wide range of things, just keeping up with like the latest um, evidence is a much, 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 much more than full-time job. And, you know, I mean, look, like we all are humans. We can't do everything. One thing that actually might be uh, accounting for some of this is that a trait of the people who probably go to the best medical schools is that they study really, really hard. <laughs> and that might be a trait that persists after medical school. And so they are keeping up with evidence at a faster rate than people who go to, to worse medical schools and maybe don't have that. And that doesn't mean the people who go to the other medical schools are bad. I did not go to a great college. I mean, I, I like UC Santa Cruz, but it's not like <laughs> the best college in the country um, because I don't study very well and certainly didn't back then. And um, and so like I've needed to come up with ways to t- try to like deal with that, deal with the fact that I have trouble concentrating on things like that. And medicine uh, has for a very long time, I think uh, Gawande likes to talk about them as cowboys. Uh, Like it's had this sort of cowboy mentality. Like, you know, you go to the fifth orthopedic person and like, he's this guy with a mustache and like he does things his own way, but he knows what's really wrong with you. And like, no, like it's gotten too big for that. Um, We don't, nobody can know anything and we need to begin in a much more systematic way creating, uh, and I know people are already beginning to work on this, but creating assistance for for doctors so that they're not on their own out there. Um, But what's very depressing is like when you think about the incredibly slow diffusion of simply electronic health records, imagining moving doctors to, uh, AI-assisted diagnostics is, it's very difficult to imagine. It's striking, I mean, AI, it's striking to me how reluctant doctors often seem compared to other professionals to just, like, admit that they're looking something up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because this happens to me all the time, right? Like, I'm a journalist, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's like, if if someone's like, suggests, like, you should do a piece about the blah, 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 I, I 
don't try to just like write off the top of my head about things because it's it's just like it's unsound. But like I think once in my life I saw a doctor actually like turn to her computer and like check something. And it turned out like the thing she'd start it seemed like she was just right all along, but which like is fine. But I, I very rarely see that. Instead, people will just come in and they'll just like be like rattling off, like, oh, do you have this symptom, that one? We get this treatment and like if it works, I guess, like, good good for you. You should go on Jeopardy or something. But that's a weird way to do your job. It's this, like, performance of, like, competence and, and, and like, mastery and, like, how you would want uh, the, like, healer character in a movie to, to react to things. But, like, that's not how I do my job. It's not how, like, attorneys that I know do their job, in part because you're not expected to do your job, like, with the client sitting directly in front of you all the time. But it, it does make me wonder about some of these things, just a kind of, like, cultural norm against, like, checking back with, like, what is the professional standard for this again? Like, I've heard a lot of buzz about this opioid problem. Like, am I doing it right it's a weird kind of field because it's it's a scientific and a technical enterprise, but it's also very much like a human service enterprise where like you're you're there in front of the patient and like you want them to like feel good about your interaction in a way that you don't expect like the chemists like behind the drugs to like be empathetic and have bedside manner. There's this like real like weird kind of duality to it. And you can particularly imagine with overprescribing those things like really pushing in different directions that like being told by the doctor, like, no, like those pills, they're not really going to help you. You might get addicted and it could ruin your life. Like what you have to do is like suck it up and do stretches more is like that. I I don't want to hear that. Right. Like you you want someone who's going to tell you like they've got a magic pill that's going to cure you. And it seems very inherently difficult to me to sort of, like, strike the balance between the job of the doctor is to, like, deal with the human being in front of you in a way that the patient finds satisfactory and that also you're going to do what's, like, technically, scientifically, and professionally, like, what the the sort of state of the art expects you to know. Yeah, well, we should probably close it there because Sarah got bored while Matt was talking and left. Fair enough. Um <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry for being so dull. Uh, but you know, I uh, thank you to everyone. She had a call. Who, she had a call. <laughs> who, who who is still here, uh, bearing bearing with us and and listening. Um, thanks to our our producer, unlike Sarah. <laughs> yes, exactly. No. It went on a long time. It, it was a long. It was a long, it was a long episode. Um, but you know, uh, uh, thank you to our, to our producers, uh, Jillian Weinberger and, and Peter Leonard, uh, who have have not been bored out of them. I'm going to quickly plug uh, the Ezra Klein show this week. Uh, I did an interview with Senator Michael Bennett from Colorado. Uh, about why uh, Congress is both so terrible and also filled with so many sociopaths, which was one of his points. It is one of the least bullshit-filled interviews I've done with a member of Congress. And so if you would like to get a sense of how working in a broken institution feels for somebody who has not completely lost sight of the fact that that is what he is doing, uh, I, I really recommend it. I think it's one of the, the best interviews I've, we've had on the show in a while. And I think it'll be of a lot of interest to the Congress nerds uh, on, of the weeds. And if you've been lying awake at night, terrified of the uh, latest North Korea nuclear program news, uh, the latest episode of, of Worldly will... Uh, well, you'll learn a lot. It'll just—it'll <laughs> to an extent put your mind at ease. I—I uh, I felt a little better about the situation after listening to it. So you know, you should—you should check that out for a, a brief spate of relief from global terror. All right, and we will see you Friday. When, when does it come out? Yeah, we'll be back Friday. Friday.